I was talking a lot about transitions this morning, so we will transition again. I want to transition into God's Word and take a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I was here two years ago and preached from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So if you recall that, please don't worry. I'm not going back to the same text. I decided, you know, we looked at the very beginning of the book. Why not look at the end? Let's look at the conclusion of the matter. So I want to take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 this morning. You can turn there in your Bibles. And actually, we'll read that in just a a couple of minutes. Before I get there, I want to talk about football for a minute. Um, I love football. I'm a football fan, a Minnesota Vikings fan. I watched the Vikings beat the Broncos last night. Um, Sorry about that, but uh, it was a good game. I, I used to play a little bit of football. Every Sunday after church, in fact, my brother and I would gather up a group of friends, uh, young guys our age, and we'd go out into a grassy field behind our church, and we would throw the football around. We'd play a game of pickup football. And as you know, football can be a rough sport. People can sometimes get hurt. Aggression can become unbridled at times. And on one occasion, I went in and made a hit, a hard hit on my brother. We were playing touch football, but for whatever reason, I just hit him. And he went down and he hit his head. Now, everything came out okay in the end, but he did suffer a concussion. He suffered a concussion. He lost his short-term memory for a couple of days. So my job during that time, my penance, if you will, was to stay by his side and to answer his incessant questions about what had happened to him. So for a couple of days, every few minutes, he would ask what happened. What happened? And I had to explain to him that we were playing a game, we were playing football. I hit him, he fell down, hit his head, and it was my fault. This was a very unpleasant thing for him. It was honestly a very unpleasant thing for me. I had to serve as his short-term memory for those couple of days. Now, I bring this up because the ability to remember is a vital function of the human brain. When this function is lost to Alzheimer's, to dementia, to trauma, to the head, we suffer, don't we? We suffer. Memories are precious to us, I think, because memories remind us of where we've been, and memories give us context for where we are. Now, I think we all have things we wish we could forget, probably embarrassing moments or difficult times in our lives. Uh, maybe abuses from the past, things of that nature. But there are also things we wish we would never forget. Uh, A graduation from from high school or or college, that sort of thing. Our wedding day, the birth of a child, those sorts of events. Those are important things. Memories can elicit both pain and joy. And we're all guilty, I think, of forgetting things at time, aren't we? Sometimes we choose to forget. Sometimes we stop learning. Sometimes we stop exploring. Sometimes we stop asking uh, the right kinds of questions, making connections between past and present. And if we're not careful, we stop remembering the most important things in life. I think you already know this, though. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. In fact, that's why you're here today, right? You're here to remember. You're here to remember your Creator. And that's why we keep coming back to church week after week, right? To remember. We need to hear the story just one more time. We need to be reminded of our sin just one more time. We need to be led just one more time to the cross of Jesus Christ in 
repentance. We need to remember. And that's why I wanted to take you to Ecclesiastes chapter 12 today, because Ecclesiastes 12 really focuses on this idea of remembering. Remember the Creator. So why don't we go ahead and read this chapter. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Let's pray before we go any further. Father God, your wisdom is like firmly embedded nails, as we see in this passage, uh, nails that anchor us in the truth. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us your statutes teach us your laws, teach us your truth, incline our hearts toward you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Remember your creator, remember. Let's begin with a little bit of context here. A very basic outline, something you can do here is just divide this text into two parts. We have verses one through eight, which conclude the teaching of the ecclesiast, the coaleth. And then we have the epilogue that comes at the end, that would be verses 9 through, through 14. So verses 1 through 8 conclude the teaching of the ecclesiast. And just a little background here, the, the word ecclesiast is a Greek word, okay, which is translated from the Hebrew koaleth. 
These are difficult words because they don't have a direct translation into modern English. So some versions of Scripture will say teacher. Sometimes you'll see the word preacher in your Bible. Um, you could interpret this as philosopher or simply as he who assembles the people in order to bestow wisdom upon them. That would be probably the most accurate uh, translation of this word. So here we have this philosopher, and he ends his instruction in the same way he began it, uh, basically by reminding us of the meaninglessness of a life devoid of God in a short, painful, unsatisfying existence under the sun. Then in verse 9, we see a kind of narratival shift that takes place from first to third person, and here's where the narrator takes over and provides a kind of epilogue, a conclusion. So you can almost picture this philosopher standing on the stage, standing up front. Uh, the spotlight begins to fade to black as he speaks his final words in this rambling discourse about the meaninglessness of life. And then the voice of the narrator takes over and gives a summary and explains the meaning of this, of this teaching. So what is the point of this rambling speech? Well, the point of it is to remember the important things to remember the one and only thing that really matters in this meaningless, chaotic, fallen, difficult world, and that is to remember the Creator, to remember God. Now, in Hebrew, the word zakar means to remember, to recall, to look back at something of importance. In fact, I think in the context here, the word assumes a prior kind of relationship. It assumes a prior commitment, a prior investment in the thing to be remembered. I find the poetry of this passage to be both beautiful and haunting at the same time. Spoken by a wise man in the twilight of life, it's a warning not to wait, not to ignore the one thing that holds everything together, not to forsake the Creator. Now, you may have noticed that these verses are, are allegorical. This is an allegory. Uh, and with that said, these verses have been subject to numerous fanciful interpretations. So care is needed when you're interpreting these kinds of texts in the Old Testament. Caution is needed. But I think what unifies verses 1 through 8 of this text is the reference to passing time and to a decaying estate. In fact, many scholars, many commentators, both Jewish and Christian, suggest that actually what's going on here is that the, the koaleth, the philosopher, is talking about a person whose, whose body is, is, is coming apart, essentially. It's an older person who's at the, the last stages of life, looking back. It, it's that kind of thing. So the, the keepers of the house, the strong men that we see in verse 3, if you want to take a look in your Bibles, verse 3, these, these, these keepers of the house, in fact, that's the arms and the legs, that's the limbs of the body that no longer have the strength they once possessed. The grinders are thought by some scholars to refer to the teeth, uh, teeth that are chipped and decayed with time. The windows to the outside world can be equated with our eyes. Uh, they become clouded by cataracts, they no longer see. The doors refer to our ears, which become closed with age to the sound of birds or the sound of laughter, uh, children in the streets, that kind of thing. Strong and capable bodies that could once defend themselves became frail. The blossoms of the almond tree represent the white hair of the elderly. 
In verse 5, the elderly person, once a strong and vibrant youth, now drags his unsightly body along in the laborious and awkward walk of a gangly grasshopper. That's the idea that the koaleth is trying to, to convey here. The golden bowl, an invaluable and precious human being, will break. The clay pot, a once useful human resource, will shatter. To dust we will return. There is no fountain of youth. No amount of Botox and plastic surgery is going to save you. No crazy, fad, gluten-free diet in which you lay down in the woods and eat only air and whatever else falls or crawls into your mouth is going to save you. I say that a bit jokingly, but there are a lot of these diets out there these days. And diet is good. Exercise is good, right? But it's not going to ultimately save you. The grim reaper will find you. You will feel his blade. And what does it all matter? It's all meaningless, right? If not for one glimmer of hope, and that is to remember. To remember the creator. To remember the creator. I think the wisdom here of the philosopher, the wisdom of the koalath is sound. It's never too early to start remembering your creator. It's never too early to put God first in your life. It's never too early to start living each day in the glorious, unfading light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't wait until you're in your 60s to start saving for retirement, right? You young people, you don't wait until the night before the exam to start studying, I hope, right? You don't wait to pack your luggage until the plane is boarding. You don't wait until 11.30 on tax day to start filling in your 10.40. You don't wait until the needle points to empty on the gas tank while driving through a remote wilderness area before you stop for gas, right? Some things cannot, must not wait. We don't wait to say I love you to those who are close to us. We shouldn't wait to ask for forgiveness. We shouldn't wait to reconcile with those who have wronged us. We shouldn't wait until we're gasping out our last on our deathbed before we take steps to get right with God, as they say, to acknowledge the Creator, to put our trust in Christ. So the first thing I think this passage tells us is that it's never too early to remember your Creator. But then the text explains why. We need to remember the Creator, that is to refocus our attention on the Creator, because the Creator is the source of all wisdom, all knowledge, wisdom and knowledge that lead to the truth and lead to a relationship with with God. Now, I think we tend to accept as an axiom, we take it as an apodictic truth, this idea that all knowledge comes from God, that God is the source of knowledge. But where do we see this? in the text? And that would be a good question. Where do we see this? I think we see it in the epilogue in verses 9 through 11 in particular. We're told that the teacher was wise, the teacher was knowledgeable, the teacher was assiduous in his study of human folly in a fallen world. The Hebrew word here which translates as upright has in fact moral implications. So the teacher's words are accurate, the teacher's words are just. The teacher's words are true. They're reliable. 
But even more so, verse 11 is the key here to reminding us that the teacher, the philosopher, is not himself the source of all wisdom and knowledge. Ultimately, wisdom is given by one shepherd, and that shepherd is God himself. Now, my reasoning and thinking that the shepherd here refers to God in this passage is twofold. First, the term teacher has been consistently used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes to refer to the author of the text, which means that there's very little reason here at this point to refer to him as the shepherd. So the context here seems to be distinguishing between two different people. Second, the Jewish readers of this literature would no doubt have been familiar with the metaphor of God as shepherd of the people. Uh, One obvious example is Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Uh, Genesis 49 uses this terminology as well. When Jacob is giving his blessing to his children, he uh, uses this term to describe God. God is the shepherd of, of the people. So that would be, I think, my, my reasoning here for, for understanding, uh, understanding the coaleth and the shepherd to be two, two different people. I think that would be the most natural reading of this passage. And I think this makes sense, really, because humans are cognitively limited. I, I think we, we all get that, right? Uh, there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we don't know that we don't know. And speaking from personal experience, the more I study in issues related to human knowledge, the less confident I am in what I think I know about the world. And it's kind of a depressing thought, actually, when, when you, you really get thinking about the, the subject. I'm currently doing PhD studies in epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge, so studying these, these kinds of questions related to skepticism. And it's really quite amazing how little we know and you really start looking at things. Knowledge is a bottomless pit, one of the most pervasive, one of the most pernicious problems, not only in philosophy, but even in, in theology, is the problem of skepticism. Skepticism about knowledge, skepticism about religious knowledge, about God. And these are, are, are serious problems. Um, if you give the subject any amount of thought, you realize that skeptical scenarios are, are lurking behind almost every knowledge claim that we allege to possess. And it's a bit startling, it's humbling to realize how little we know, but at the same time, the idea is not to despair in this. We should not despair, especially as followers of Christ. As Christians, we should not despair because the, the passage tells us that knowledge is both possible and essential. Studying, reading, writing, these things are not a waste of time. On the contrary, we need the right kind of knowledge. That's the point of this text. We need the right kind of knowledge and we need to put knowledge in its proper context. True knowledge comes from the Lord. One of the few things I truly am convinced of is this. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We read that in the Proverbs. Knowledge of God is prerequisite to true wisdom. Earlier we sang in in one of the songs, in the first stanza of that last song, God is unknown. I would take some issue with that, in fact. God is known. God reveals himself through Scripture and through Jesus Christ. We have to know God rightly if we're going to know the world rightly. Does that make sense? It's very important. So, God's wisdom cannot be made any more perfect. 
God's wisdom cannot be perfected by man. God's plan of salvation for humankind cannot be improved by anything that we add to it. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the salvation of his people cannot be made any more perfect by anything we do for it or add to it. Adding to God's perfect wisdom is folly and only leads to further folly. You can't improve perfection. Now imagine that you are visiting me in Lyon, France, where I work, where I live. Okay, and you decide, okay, you're in Lyon. Lyon is the gastronomical capital of France. That means it is the capital of all food, everything food-related, which means that it's the capital of gastronomy for the world. And the French take a lot of pride in this. So Lyon has some terrific restaurants, and one of our most famous chefs is a man by the name of Paul Bacuse. He was considered the greatest chef of the last century. He kicked the bucket. He, he died this last year. And the city went into mourning. The country went into mourning. This was a big deal for the French when this guy died. It was a very serious thing for them. I think they might have even had flags at, at half-staff or something. This was a serious thing. But imagine you're at Paul Bacuse's restaurant. Okay, he has three Michelin stars. This is the best of the best, okay? And you've scraped together the 300 euros necessary to, 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 to eat at his restaurant. So you're there, you've been ushered into this opulent dining room, and you decide that you're just going to go with something simple, something classic, we'll say a, a filet mignon, something like that, okay? And you know that this piece of meat will be cooked to perfection, you know it will be seasoned to perfection, you know it will be garnished just right, everything will be perfect about this meal. And so the food is brought out and set in front of you. But you decide that you're an, uh, more of an expert than Paul Bacuse, and you're going to improve on this dish. So you send the meat back. You tell them, I want this thing charbroiled, black, just cook this thing all the way through. I want it thrown on a hamburger bun with some barbecue sauce, <laughs> some onion rings, bring it out with a Coca-Cola. And so you, th this is what you've done to the, you know, this perfect, perfect meal. And essentially what you've done here is desecrated perfection, right? You have committed an atrocious act of sacrilege against this god of food, okay? So my point here is that a wise man knows that he cannot improve upon perfection. Or imagine having a child take some finger paints to fix up one of Leonardo da Vinci's masterpieces or something of that nature. There's some things you can't improve upon. The wisdom of God, revealed by one shepherd, by God himself, in his word, the Bible, is both necessary and sufficient if we are to know God. You can't improve on God's word. God's word tells the complete story of creation, of fall, of redemption. The whole of the word of God points us to the cross of Jesus Christ and the work he finished on that cross. Beware of anything in addition to these words. Beware of anyone who tells you that more is needed. Beware of anyone who tells you that there's more than Jesus Christ. Beware of those who tell you that for true spirituality you must visit certain holy sites or take pilgrimages to holy places or bathe in sacred rivers or meditate under sacred trees or recite sacred prayers or wear sacred undergarments or whatever. And there are religions that will tell you that you need to do these kinds of things. There are people that will tell you that you need to read their holy book in order to really understand scripture. 
beware. The Creator's wisdom, which culminates at the cross of Christ, may indeed seem like foolishness to those who are perishing, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but God's wisdom cannot be improved upon. There's no better place to be than in a state of constant remembrance of Jesus Christ. Remember your Creator. And this brings us to the conclusion of the matter in verse 13, and the final words in the epilogue. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is to say, honor your Lord and live by His word. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes is simply a call to faithfulness. It's a call to faithfulness. Remember your Creator by remaining faithful to Him, by following His commandments, by acknowledging your fallen condition, by admitting to your limitations and to your desperate need for a Savior. Remembering is an essential piece of the Christian life every day. Every day should be spent remembering the Creator, walking with the one true shepherd. Our love and desire for God should permeate everything we do. It should serve as a witness, as a testimony to the eyes of a watching world. Let me take you back to France again here, to my, uh, my home. In March of this last year, French police responded to yet another Islamic terrorist attack. Uh, it happened in Carcassonne, which is a city in the south of France. And this is a now a regular occurrence in France, uh, these kinds of events, unfortunately. But already this, this attack had led to several deaths, and the terrorist was holding a female hostage in a grocery store. Maybe you remember hearing about this in, in the news. So one of the police officers who responded to the scene was a man by the name of Arnold Beltram. He volunteered, actually, to go in and take the place of this, this hostage. Do you remember hearing about that as well? So he ended up essentially trading his life for, for hers. Uh, by the time the ordeal was over, by the time police stormed the building and took out the terrorist, Beltram had been shot four times and stabbed in the throat. He died of his wounds. Later, however, it did come out in the media that this policeman was a devout Christian and a committed member of his local church. This was a beautiful testimony of self-sacrifice and Christ-like love. One life given as a ransom so that this captive woman would be able to go home to her family that night. But Christ did something greater still. The sinless God-man gave his life so that we would be able to live eternally. True wisdom manifested itself in the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ at the cross, who willingly drank the cup of suffering in our place. God did the work. What he requires of us is to remember. Yet sin is like a concussion to the head, isn't it? We forget. We forget very easily. We need to be reminded. That's why we need to come back again and again to the cross. That's why we come back again and again to the Word of God in recognition of our dependency on the Lord. That's why we come back again and again, Sunday after Sunday, to hear the story one more time. It doesn't matter what vocation God has called us to in life, our job is to remember remember the Creator. What I want to encourage you with today is simply this. 
Remember your creator and know that he remembers you. Know that he remembers you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He remembers us always. He remembers us in the twilight of life. He remembers us in our youth. He remembers those walking through shadow and fear and suffering. He remembers us in good times and bad. He remembers those laboring to make ends meet day to day. He remembers those working hard to raise their children. He remembers the missionary on the foreign field. He remembers us in France, but he remembers you here at home as well. He remembers us in the good times and bad, as I mentioned. But the key thing here is that we need to remember him. Remember your creator. Let's pray. Lord God, how easily, how easily we forget you. How easily we forget the cross. Lord, we confess that we have often forgotten you. We have chased after idols. Forgive us, Lord. Shepherd us. We ask that you would lead us in true wisdom, true knowledge. Lead us again to the cross. Amen.